Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Every single villain in this show is reacting to what happened post blip. And every single hero is dealing with personal stories that are affected by this blip. You know what I'm saying? And so I think it just sort of, I, I, if this is going to be a terrible metaphor, uh, it's, it's almost like Thanos left the dinner table a mess. And this series is about to clean off the dinner table. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Push the Envelope. I'm the AV Club's editor-in-chief, Patrick Gomez, and this week we'll be hearing from some of the creators of The Falcon and The Winter Soldier. But first, we have the SAG Awards coming up, and we obviously are super excited about the Oscars, but we don't want to forget about the SAGs because they're super important for us, for all of the actors involved, and the awards there are somewhat unique, which is something we're going to be getting into today with our TV editor, Danette Chavez, who has joined us to discuss the TV nominations for the Screen Actors Guild awards. Uh, thanks for joining, Danette. Hi, happy to be here again. So, Danette, you and I actually, just before starting to record this, we're talking a little bit about what makes the SAGs so unique, and I would love for you to kind of share those thoughts now with, with our, our listening public. Yeah. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about the SAG and the way that they choose to word their nominations and, and choose their nominees. Well, you know, I we talked about this a bit, you know, with the launch of the podcast, the notion of vote splitting, right? Like if you have two great actors in one series, maybe neither of them gets nominated because their presence in the same show splits the votes. Um, what's great about SAG is that there is recognition for an ensemble in both a drama and in comedy. And, it, you know, it, it gives them a chance to recognize the work of the group and maybe, you know, head off some of that vote splitting where, you know, you think to yourself, like, there, you know, there are two great lead performances in this. We can highlight those with this nomination and then, you know, maybe, you know, like just get down to the nitty gritty and pick one favorite in the overall nominations. And when we talked about like the when we went over the Golden Globe nominees, I remember uh, Lovecraft Country came up in that discussion because there were no uh, individual nominations there. And Lovecraft Country is, of course, nominated for outstanding performance by an ensemble in a drama. What are your thoughts about that? Because I know most of our discussion of that show in terms of awards has been around the performances. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think as a viewer, uh, we take in all of the aspects of the show. Obviously, we're taking in everything down to the sound design and uh, the costumes and the music and all of the things that other award shows take into consideration and have awards for. But at the end of the day, it really does come down to the performances. I mean, that's what a lot of the times we walk away from. There might be some sort of big science fiction series that were like, oh my God, the special effects were so cool. Or, you know, speaking of Falcon and Winter Soldier, you know, it's like, oh my God, like that opening action sequence was incredible. Uh, and obviously that's not necessarily acting, even though there are act there's acting involved in those scenes as well. But we walk away with like what the show made us feel 
And a lot of what makes the show make us feel something is the performances. So I do think that that's something that's really special about SAG and why I think it can align a lot more closely with maybe what general viewing public, ourselves included in that, may feel about a show because we're not looking so much at all of the minute technical aspects of a show as much as we are uh, looking at a performance and, and feeling, you know, seeing what that makes us feel. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that that's great. It's great that that the Screen Actors Guild does this. It's great that the Screen Actors Guild exists. I mean, I think that the the other aspect of all of this is that, you know, I think it, it's particularly right now, we we don't think of, of the Screen Actors Guild as, as this like massive union because it, it's all these theoretically rich and famous people. But I think it's it's important for us to note that the Screen Actors Guild you know, mainly exists to support the the working or even non-working actors. You know, this ceremony is highlighting some of the 0.01% of the union that they spend their year supporting and making sure feel supported, particularly over this past uh, pandemic year. So, you know, I, I definitely want to make sure to point out like how important the organization is beyond the awards that they uh, present. But the awards are pretty fun too. Um, so why don't we uh, take a look at uh, some of the big categories here? Um, as you mentioned, they phrase and vote for their big awards based on the ensemble rather than the show itself. And while they do also award individual performances, we're going to take a look at the ensemble categories uh, and how those overlap and don't with some of the individual acting categories as well. So why don't we start off with with comedy, Danette? Um, I'll go ahead and list those nominees here and then I'd love to hear your thoughts. So the outstanding performance by an ensemble in a comedy series nominations are Dead to Me, The Flight Attendant, The Great, Schitt's Creek, and Ted Lasso. Uh, so I know, you know, we've had a few weeks to look at these lists now since they were announced. What what were your initial thoughts, though, Danette? Um, no real surprises here in the outstanding performance by an ensemble, ensemble, excuse me, in a comedy competition. You know, Linda Cardellini and Christina Applegate are both nominated individually, but, you know, the, there's a great supporting cast for Dead to Me, so that makes sense. I'm delighted to see the great on here because I, you know, I, I think that's also just such a great ensemble. And uh, Schitt's Creek and Ted Lasso really seem to be in like a, a dead heat for, you know, breakout or, you know, like the best of like the, the life-affirming TV series. It seems like they're kind of trading off the accolades. And so I wonder if we're going to have a similar race to what we saw uh, at the Golden Globes. Um, and the flight attendant, that's also like, if they're not going to have like supporting actor nominations for somebody like uh, Zosha Mamet, I'm glad to see the flight attendant nominated for ensemble because she is so good in that show. And um, I love to see the recognition. Yeah, I do. I do love Josh. One of the things to point out here is that um, if you look at the individual acting categories for the comedy series, they SAG do not separate supporting oh, and lead. Okay. Um, so, so we have Annie Murphy and Catherine O'Hara for Schitt's Creek up against each other, and Christina Applegate and Linda Cardellini up against each other, uh, with Kaylee Cuoco finishing out those female actor in a comedy series nominations. And then on the male actor side, we have Dan Levy and Eugene Levy up against each other, as well as Jason Sudeikis for Ted Lasso and Nicholas Holt for The Great. So really the only representation in the individual categories that we don't see in the ensemble category is Rami Youssef for Rami. Mm -hmm. Um, which I know you and I are both big fans of the show and him. Um, so I'm glad to see him there. But it's interesting to note that like he's the only representation there that we that we don't see represented in the 
ensemble category. And then the other thing to note is that uh, we don't see Elle Fanning from The Great represented in the individual category. We only see Nicholas Holt. So it, it, it the overlap is significant, but it's also important to note where we don't see that. And I, I wonder if that means that Rami's nomination is his is his award or if he'll stand out in some sort of way because mm. people will feel that they're voting for a show on ensemble. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I I wonder if, you know, how much of that is like a like a name thing, like or it, it, how much of that is uh, can be chalked up to, you know, this l- notion of a tour shows, you know, so you've got like Pamela mm-hmm. Adlon for better things. And you've got Rami Youssef in a show he created that, you know, he, you know, executive produces and that bears his name. <laughs> and, you know, if if, if they're going to be efficient about these nominations, right, like. Maybe maybe they're thinking to themselves that they're just kind of getting two for one there. Yeah. Well, like you said, uh, <laughs> you know, I think he's he's well deserving, and and I'm yeah. glad he's I'm glad he's in that bunch. Um, but I do think that it's going to come down to a a Schitt's Creek uh, Ted Lasso yeah. rundown in the in the main category. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the individual categories, though, with co-stars up against each other and if those split votes. And that that means Kaylee Cuoco walks away with a flight attendant win because Schitt's Creek and Dead to Me both were split between two people. And if that means maybe Jason Sudeikis has an edge over the Schitt's Creek gentleman um, mm. because of splitting votes, too, it'll all be super, super interesting. But let's let's take a look at the drama category. The nominations for the outstanding performance in an, by an ensemble in a drama series nominations are Better Call Saul, Bridgerton, The Crown, Lovecraft Country, and Ozark. Uh, aside from us all knowing the AV Club is big fans of Better Call Saul, Danette, what are your feelings here? Um, that they cheated Ray Seahorn once again. <laughs> do, <laughs> do we really need three nominees from The Crown? I mean, like, I mean, I think the crown's fantastic. I would maybe have gone down to two. Um, I think you know we've discussed Gillian Anderson's performance, and I think that she's great. But I just don't know that if 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 there was only room for two, it would certainly be Olivia Coleman and Emma Corrin, um, who we should note are up for the individual awards next to two Ozark people. So it's three crown and two Ozarks for actress in the drama category with Julia Garner and Laura Linney nominated as well. Um, but yes, I agree with you. Three is a lot. I, I mean, I, I totally understand that, especially over the last couple of weeks, right, with the Meghan Markle and Prince Harry conversation. And I mean, even before that, like, th- I, we've talked about this before, about how for a lot of viewers, this is the era of British royal history that they're most familiar with. So it makes sense that that would remain on people's minds. I just, you know, I, I guess it's the the editor in me where I'm like, I got to see some variety. <laughs> I'm just kind mm-hmm. of like, you know, I wish, I wish they'd push themselves a little bit more, but n- this discussion is never to like diminish the performances. I mean, except when it is not in this case, I don't think there are any performances <laughs> here that aren't worthy of recognition, but it's still, you know, just one of those things where I'm like, really guys, <laughs> three, but, you know, looking at the, the, the male actor in a drama series uh, nominations, you know, there's there's really just Josh O'Connor in there representing for The Crown. Um, feels like Jason Bateman and Sterling K. Brown and Bob Odenkirk are just going to keep getting nominated <laughs> um, as long as they're on their respective series, Ozark, This Is Us, and Better Call Saul. But what are your thoughts on the nomination for Reggae Jean Page 
of Bridgerton, Patrick, because that's really the only single nomination uh, for that show. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, to me, it's it's Bridgerton, I think, came out at the right time for people to be super excited about it and and maybe elevate it to a nomination here. I don't know if like a year from now, looking at this nominations list, if everyone would be like, oh, that's what I would have included among this list of nominees. And that's not to say great work isn't done there. I just feel like uh, it was it was more of a zeitgeist vote in than a mm. uh, lasting memory vote in. So you know, I get, I think, I think the nomination is the, is the award here for him. And, and as well as the show being included on this list, it's like SAG tends to avoid the shiny new thing nominations more than the, uh, more than like Emmys and, and uh, the Golden Globes do, I feel at least. But I do think that that's kind of what's, what's happening here a little bit. Um, to your point on, on the crown nominations, you know, I think obviously the, the Royals being in the news a lot more recently makes it exciting. And the fact that we do know this era of the royal family's history more plays into the, the interest. But I, I do think that that is maybe another reason why they're being recognized is because these are characters that we know so well now. That, you know, in the same way that we awarded uh, the people versus O.J. Simpson and that kind of, you know, these are characters that easily could become caricatures. And I think that even even uh, Gillian Anderson's uh, Margaret Thatcher stays on this side of doing that. And I think that's a really delicate line to to uh, to walk. And they did. So, I, you know, I, I do think, you know, as you said, we're not we're not trashing anyone um, for being yeah. on here, but it would just be nice to see some diversity. So the drama category to me becomes a little less exciting because of the lack of diversity. Uh, well, I mean, you know, we could speak also to the diversity of the people nominated. Um, yeah. We don't see any people of color in the female category and two in the in the male category. But, uh, you know, the, the representation in many ways could be a little bit more broad here. But um, I think that it's interesting. Uh, you know, we, we noted this in previous awards and kind of where Lovecraft Country gets nominated. But we have the ensemble nominated, but no individual performances there, um, which I think is is interesting. It's the only one who has no representation in the individual uh, awards. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that's absolutely a great point. Um, I know that we wanted to touch on the TV movie and limited series categories as well, where our friend, your friend, my friend, everyone's friend, Mark Ruffalo, is once again nominated for I Know This Much Is True. Then this is under Outstanding Performance by a Male Actor in a TV Movie or Limited Series, along with Bill Camp for The Queen's Gambit, David Diggs for Hamilton, Hugh Grant for The Undoing, and Ethan Hawke for The Good Lord Bird. Um, is Mark Ruffalo going to win this award just to prove me wrong yet again? I, I think so. I think it's now personal, um, <laughs> and Mark is just going for it. Uh, I think that it's, it's uh, you know, I think he has momentum behind him. I think I think that it's there. I think... I think it's a little bit of a disservice to not do an ensemble award for television, movie, or limited series in the same way they do drama and comedy. Um, I think that these performances, as well as the female actor category, uh, has some strong candidates. Uh, we have Kate Blanchett for Miss America. We have Michaela Cole, who I know we were devastated didn't get a Golden Globe nomination, but is represented here for I May Destroy You. Nicole Kidman for The Undoing. Anya Taylor-Joy for The Queen's Gambit. And Kerry Washington for Little Fires Everywhere. 
these are all great, um, great performances, but I do think that, it, you know, I would love to have seen an ensemble award here, um, just because I do think like Miss America's ensemble, I, I find to have been incredible. You know, I think you would see, uh, some, some deserving actors get some accolades if we, if we had that category here. So I'm surprised that that's not the case. Yeah. It, it, I, I feel like, uh, the Golden Globes does kind of the opposite of this by condensing the, is it the support? It's the supporting actor category, right? Where it's like TV series, TV movie, or limited series, or like anthology or something. And I'm just basically, like... basically, if you're supporting, yeah, if you're supporting, exactly. you all get lumped in one in one category. And here, at the very least, they put supporting and lead in the same one, which at mm-hmm. least makes everyone equal. Yeah, uh, I mean, like I respect the desire to be efficient if that's what they're doing with this. But yeah, this, I mean. I, I think over the last couple of discussions about award shows, we've talked about how uh, limited series is really, you know, there's o- it's always one of the more interesting competitions. Um, and I think we're seeing that again with these nominations. Although once again, Carrie Washington is recognized for her work on Little Fires Everywhere and Reese Witherspoon, who was in everything <laughs> over the last year and a half, um, is still just kind of waiting for the morning show season two. I mean, I guess as, as we all are at this point, I, I guess, but uh, I mean, hopefully, hopefully, uh, you know, for me in that category, though, like, I, I just, I, Kate, like, Michaela Cole is fantastic and I think deserves a ton of accolades, but the performance, almost the performance of the year for me goes to Kate Blanchett. And I know, I, I know we've discussed, uh, Miss America at length. And so I've repeated that multiple times here on this podcast, but I, I just, I was in awe of the work she did there. So we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. I think it's good to have a favorite. I'm just going to keep stumping for Ethan Hawke to get something for playing John Brown because I can't get that performance out of my head, along with Michaela Cole's work, obviously, on I May Destroy You. But I like that through line through all these discussions, right? Like, Yeah, I've... well, it shows we stick to our guns. We have our, we exactly. have our opinions here and they are strong and we, we support them. <laughs> uh, well, we will see if we are, we will see if we are right when the 27th annual SAG Awards air on TNT and TBS on April 4th. Danette, thank you so much for being here and discussing all of it with me. And of course, we'll have you back very soon to discuss more. Thanks. But those of you listening are not done just yet. Our Mara Eakin recently got the chance to chat with two members of the team behind Marvel's new Disney Plus series, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. First up, we're going to hear from showrunner Malcolm Spellman, who spoke with Mara about how the show helps evolve the MCU into the post-Endgame world, and what we can expect from Emily Van Camp's character Sharon Carter and Daniel Bruhl's villainous Baron Zemo. (laughs) Let's take a listen to what he had to say. How you doing, Mara? Good, thank you. So because this is a Marvel project, there's not a ton of like super specifics about what we're going to get with the show. But I know that in part it deals with what it means for Sam Wilson, the Falcon, I guess, if you will, to be handed the sort of Captain America shield, the moniker, in a country that's still fighting racism daily. But can you talk to me about sort of how the show deals with the social realities of life in post-blip? Marvel America and then as well as like real America. So the best thing that could have happened to the show was us being shut down because we'd already created, we knew from the beginning of doing this project, we wanted to make something that felt super, super relevant. And we wanted conflicts and characters and stories and sub stories and themes all of that to feel very much of today and of now, 
right? Even before we got shut down, we knew that the spirit of post blip with half the world's population suddenly appearing after five years has spun everything into chaos. And in the Marvel universe, every single living being is dealing with the same problem, right? Then we get shut down by a global pandemic that is forcing every single living being on this planet, rich or poor, to deal with the same problem. And since we'd already staged that in the Marvel universe, uh, you know, in our project from the Marvel universe, it was an opportunity for us to create connectivity. And I, I would say subtly uh, mirror are two realities and yeah the issues on you know like dealing listen sam is a is a black man and as we go home with him you see he's really from the struggle and so there's no way he could just in good faith take on that symbol because it means something very different in his hands than it does uh steve steve rogers yeah i mean watching the episode there are moments when you're like oh shit like these guys have been through a lot like everyone has been through a lot and thinking about the realities of like, okay, half the population disappeared. No one kept up their apartments or no one, you know, how do you, how do you vouch for someone that hasn't worked in five years or, you know, or thinking about Bucky, like being a killer for 70 years, like he's got some shit to work through. There's a lot going on. It's interesting. Like that was for the Bucky character it was so obvious what we were going to have to tackle. That was almost a treat because this dude has not been in his right mind for almost a hundred years. B he's 106 years old, which means he does not fit into this era and never had even had an opportunity to fit into any other era because he was being manipulated. But obviously first and foremost, the volume of people he's killed, including, you know, people in Stark's family, and we have this line in the series where I can't remember if it's in the first episode, but somewhere in the series, he says, when someone's trying to make this excuse, well, you were being manipulated. You had no way of knowing. He said, no, I remember everyone, which means he believes a part of him was there and present. And if that's the case, isn't he the monster that Hydra made him out to be? So, yeah, he's got a lot to deal with. And. As you see, we brought it into his face in a very, very personal uh, and direct way. I mean, with that being said, like coming out of WandaVision, people are like, how does this set the stage for the next thing? Like we left Endgame, now we're here. Like, how do you think that the show moves things forward a little bit? Well, I think the first thing it does is it directly references this state of being of Endgame, not anecdotally, but as the defining thing on the planet. You know what I'm saying? It defines every single villain in this show is reacting to what happened post blip. And every single hero is dealing with personal stories that are affected by this blip. You know what I'm saying? And so I think it just sort of, I, I, if this is going to be a terrible metaphor, uh, <laughs> it's, it's almost like Thanos left the dinner table a mess and this series is about to clean off the dinner table. That's a good metaphor. It makes a lot of sense. All right. So beyond just Falcon and Winter Soldier, you also got to use some characters from previous Marvel table setting for you, like Sharon Connor and Zemo and a few, you know, a few unnamed others. Who are you sort of most excited as a writer to like have back and sort of figure out? I'll tell you who 
surprised me the most, which was Zemo, in that how human he became in this series. But the character that turned into the most fun was Sharon Carter because Emily has such a baby face, you know what I'm saying? And looks very, very sweet and innocent. But Sharon Carter is 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 gonna emerge as a badass. Like I don't I, I'd have to use far more inappropriate language to describe how awesome she is, you know what I'm saying? Let's just say this. Sharon Carter is all grown up now. You know what I'm saying? And that, and as we discussed, what I guess what made it so fun was we started a civil war. And you just factor in what would have naturally happened between civil war and now. And now you got a whole different Sharon Carter showing up. Um, the show has been built, you know, in, in sort of like featurettes and stuff. They'll sort of talk about like, oh, this is a buddy comedy. Like this is a buddy action movie, blah, blah, blah. Um, did you guys watch anything in reference? Like the yeah. writers or you in specific? 100%. So we knew on the buddy cop spectrum of tone, you have at the most dramatic defiant ones on one end. And on the most comedic on the other end, Rush Hour and Ride Along. And we didn't want to be in either one of those places. As you get to 48 Hours and then Lethal Weapons and then Bad Boys 1, Lethal Weapon and Bad Boys 1 was the area we decided we wanted to play in because what those what that genre is able to do is take on real issues, but deliver them in a way that's muscular and fun. And they never get bogged down, but they also don't have to shy away from the real. So that would be, I'd say Lethal Weapon, uh, Bad Boys 1 with a little bit of 48 Hours, but not quite that dark and edgy. <laughs> In some ways, the Avengers are, quote unquote, law enforcement, like they are enforcing laws. Um, in other ways, they're sort of like the best version of law enforcement. And what we're seeing in the show, in part, is like sort of when many hands get involved, that shit gets mucked up. How do you sort of view the line of like, where superheroes are in terms of being the protectors of what's right and what's wrong. It, it's funny. I mean, the Zemo character is going to lend a lot of voice to that. And you can see what he thinks of it. And obviously all of us are sort of channeled through him a little bit in that Zemo sees all of them as supremacists. And he thinks that people who are endowed with abilities that are extraordinary like law enforcement, or in this case, heroes, right, are inherently going to abuse their power. And you, he has damn good reason to think that, you know what I'm saying? They destroyed his country by using his city as a bomb and killed his entire family along with everyone, you know, he knew. So Zemo sees himself as a hero in this series. And we wanted him to be able to speak to his motivation in a way that even the audience and sometimes the heroes themselves have to nod their head and be like, he's right. I love it. And this was a real pleasure. So thank you so much, Malcolm. Thank you. Next up, we hear from Carrie Skogland, who directed all six episodes of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. We didn't get any spoilers out of her about the rest of the season, but she did tell Mara about all of the epic action sequences and why we won't be seeing a lot of guns being used on the show. Uh, here she is on all that and more. So why this was a huge success for Disney Plus and in terms of like fan involvement with the show, 
have you let that put a little more pressure on you? And in terms of expectations, like, can you please everybody all the time when it comes to a Marvel project? Uh, I'm sure we can't. So, I mean, I, I don't even know. I just try to stay true to the story that we're telling. You know, of course, they came out of the, the gate swinging. So that's fantastic. I was thrilled for, for because it's such a creative show and so unique and different. You know, it couldn't have it couldn't have opened the whole you know Disney streaming thing for Marvel better, uh, as far as uh, I could tell. Now, you know, have they set the bar high? Yes. How exciting is that for us? And you know, I hope the fans embrace our show. Uh, we loved making this show. We're very very proud of it, and I hope the fans embrace it as, as much as we loved making it. I just hope the fans are as, as engaged. It's spectacular. The fan base. Uh, that they are so invested in these characters and, and are so interested, I think is is um, extraordinary. Did you guys watch anything in reference? Like, did you come in thinking about, you know, with different sort of projects on your, your mood board? Oh, sure. Um, yes, a, a great way to put it. The way I try to get uh, inspiration and ideas and, and, and such is from a very, very wide sweep of different uh, genres, even if I'm looking at a particular execution, mostly because I want it to have some originality. I want it to have uh, not just my voice, my personal voice, but also to embrace other ideas that I can bring into the genre. So it's all about sort of feeding, feeding the synapses and stirring the pot and coming out with something hopefully original. So, you know, I look uh, at, a, at a wide range, everything, you know, cinematically from a David Lean to a, a, a relationship that Alina Workmiller did, or more recently, The Untouchables, or might be, uh, you know, yes, 48 Hours and, you know, yes, uh, Lethal Weapon and some of the classics for sure, because we, we were in that sort of buddy cop arena. But uh, the, the goal was to really, you know, embrace all aspects of relationship movies. Uh, as much as we could, because we had so much more real estate, so much more time to explore it with these characters. So I wanted to be informed, you know, and so I'd bubble it all together, put it in the, put it there, and hopefully uh, out comes something fresh. There are some, I mean, having seen the episode, the first episode, there are some huge action pieces here. Um, what, like, learning curve were you on? And, like, what was the most difficult thing for you to sort of figure out? Uh, well, no, I think all the action sequences have to uh, serve character and story and character story. So I looked at every one of those having a unique angle to them, a unique perspective. I wanted each action sequence to have its own uh, its own unique DNA at its core. So we really uh, looked for uh, how to do that, how to mix that up in a way that was not only uh, satisfying for, you know, visually and from a stunt perspective, but really from a character place. So whether, you know, I, I look at action sequences much like uh, you look at a, a drama sequence, it's still got a beginning, middle and end, and it's still got a violence to it of some form that is character based. Now, I guess one of the things that, that I uh, did as a sort of overview, we reduced weaponry. So it did mean that, you know, our choreographed, uh, all the things we choreographed come from a sort of a different mindset. And that that just by definition uh, brings a different flavor to it. Why did you guys decide to do that? Uh, for obvious reasons. You know, I think uh, folks, we need to look at weaponry as a different in entertainment as being too much of a crutch. So we wanted to, uh, you know, have our characters 
be clever and be interesting and not just rely on uh, the go-to gun. When I was watching this episode, I was like really struck by where we're entering this. Like, oh yeah, we've lost two Avengers. Do you know what I mean? Like the world, you know, people were gone for five years and then popped back in. Like a lot has changed and there's a lot of difference. And they're really going through some emotional journeys. Like there's some lines in this when they'll say like to Bucky, like you were a killer for 80 years or something where you're like, oh, right. He was like, that would be really hard to deal with. So I love too that the show's dealing with him going to therapy because frankly, like all of the Avengers should be in very serious therapy all the time. Yes, I think um, all these characters have seen or been involved with, you know, very traumatic events. And, um, you know, I don't think Marvel's ever shied away from exploring the consequences of some of those events. And we just have a little more time to do it. So in our case, we're able to um, explore it on a, on a more detailed character level uh, just because we have the time. So, yeah, I'm looking at consequences, looking at, um, you know, he, he left behind him a trail of victims uh, and, and there are there's collateral damage. So what does that look like? And what does that feel like for a guy who has to cope with, you know, what it is to go forward? Because he's going to have to do some healing in order to to be able to find some relevance for his his future um, and where he sits as a result of his past. You have um, in some interviews and stuff talked about sort of the glass ceiling for women directors or how it's, you know, you could say hire hire more people but if there's not people to you know people have to come up through the system and get sort of elevated what does it mean for you to be given this chance like on a very big scale and how are you sort of like helping other women along the way uh well it was a huge opportunity you know like (laughs) captain america comes knocking at your door you answer the door (laughs) uh i was thrilled to tell the story and i felt it it really is one one of the most important stories of this century. So uh, for all the reasons of the themes and, and the relevance that, that's happening right now that we discuss uh, in our world. So uh, it was very on side with my my political thoughts and views and what I like to, to embed in, in entertainment. So I was absolutely thrilled. I, I think going forward, what I'm hoping is that I can be part of the wave because there's a number of women coming on stream who are doing big movies like this and uh, and or shows. And uh, Marvel's been at the forefront of, of um, promoting that as well, uh, is um, that very soon, I hope we no longer say female director or male director or black director or Chinese director. I hope soon we're able to just say director or writer, you know, so that the labels and the, the genders and the um, ethnicity uh, count less. Because I obviously I like to work in a muscular space. I I uh, enjoy working in a world that is very challenging, that isn't what we think stereotypically uh, is feminine. So, but I think men can do the same thing. It's about the passion of the filmmaker. It's about the sensibility of the filmmaker. So uh, I would hate it for a world for the world to be uh, come to a place where oh, only women can tell women's stories. Only only men can tell men's stories. Only, you know, I, I think it has to come from the heart and uh, from the skill set and, you know, from the hard work that it takes to get to anywhere where you're successful and, and let it be that instead of any, getting tangled with other, other politics. Anymore. 
Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode. You can check out new episodes of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier every Friday on Disney Plus and the 27th Annual Screen Actors Guild Awards on Sunday, April 4th on TNT and TBS. We, of course, will be covering those all over avclub.com and you can find me on social media at Patrick Gomez LA. I'll be back with another new episode of Push the Envelope next Thursday. And if you're a fan, please remember to subscribe, rate, and comment wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, bye. This episode of the AV Club's Push the Envelope was brought to you by producer Michaela Heck and sound engineer Ryan Allen. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.